again, and welcome to Knowing God with Heart and Mind, our weekly visit to the Virtual Church Classroom podcast, presented each week by me, Pastor Dan, with the help of my lovely daughter, Bethany, on behalf of Shiloh United Methodist Church in Jasper, Indiana. If you're ever in the neighborhood, please come by and see us. We'd be glad to get to know you. This podcast is a attempt each week to make up for that Sunday school class or week, uh, weekly Bible study that you've missed out on, perhaps, and uh, to give you another way to join in the wonderful privilege of knowing God's heart and mind through Scripture, and therefore that Spirit of God changes our heart and mind. That's the goal. It is not in any way to take place of this uh, personal involvement that I hope you find in a local church, but it is hopefully a good supplement to your Christian journey. And uh, so that's why we do this each week, and it's a pleasure to be with you once again. This week we're going to read Psalm 4 from the New International Version of the Bible. This is a psalm for the director of music with stringed instruments, a psalm of David, Psalm 4. Answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. How long will you people turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Know that the Lord has set apart his faithful servant for himself. The Lord hears when I call on him. Tremble and do not sin. When you are on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. Offer the sacrifices of the righteous and trust in the Lord. Many, Lord, are asking, who will bring us prosperity? Let the light of your face shine on us. Fill my heart with joy when their grain and new wine abound. In peace I will lie down and sleep for you alone, Lord. Make me dwell in safety. Let us pray. Almighty God, I thank you and I praise you today for your word. This word that is more than pages full of script and text, but it is the very mind and heart of our Creator. I thank you, Lord, that we are invited to your throne room of grace. Uh, maybe a better analogy, Lord, is you invited us into your parlor, to your living room, to sit and visit with you, to get to know the very mind and heart that speaks through this book to our hearts and minds. As the Lord, as we gather in your name, we are constantly aware of the various troubles and needs that have been exposed to us or revealed to us in some way in our world. Each of us brings our family's concerns, our community's concerns, our local and national concerns, and of course, the things we hear about in the world. Yet our study of scripture tells us plainly that you have not missed a beat, that you are on top of it all, that you know exactly what's going on in all places and at all time. And we are privileged to know that our Heavenly Father has a handle on all of this, that we don't need to worry about the big picture. So yes, Lord, we come to you with our daily strife and stress, 
asking for your help with our physical health problems, with our emotional and mental problems, with our community problems, with the things we deal with at work and our financial worries. And uh, we pray for our children and their uh, various temptations that might lead them far from you and all of that. It comes every week in our time of study together, but we study in part in order to make sense of the things that seem so out of control and and uh, so wrong. And it is difficult, Lord, not to complain when we pray. But we give us we, we give ourselves to you in this hour that you might help us to just relax and rest in your word for a while so that when the tough times come again, we will once again, like the psalmist, put all our faith in you and count our many blessings. Amen. We can be sure of this. Our God will set apart his own. We can be sure of this. Our God will answer when we call. We can be sure of this. Our God will say. Well, we are still studying the book of Revelation. I've got Bethany here with me right now. Say hi, Beth. Hello. And this is session four of Revelation. I've had to call it that because if you were trying to track us by verses, you'd know, especially if you're one of my Wednesday night Bible study people, we may not have read more than one verse since last week. So we are actually in session four of Revelation recording on uh, Thursday, the fourth of, uh, excuse me, the fourth month, the 12th day of the uh, 2018. Now that I've read the numbers off the page, I'm going to say the date properly, April 12th. <laughs> That's uh, Titanic Day, isn't it? Yeah, Titanic was sunk on April twelfth, didn't it? Twenty. In, in, in I'm April? gonna go with yes. I just know the year. Yeah, I know it's April. I know it's April nineteen twelve. Yeah, maybe that's what I'm thinking. Well, now that we've completely diverged once again, <laughs> I uh, would like to resume discussion of the actual topic, which is our Bible study of the Book of Revelation, and this is session four, recorded on April the 12th, 2018. And uh, one of the reasons that we're kind of reminding you each week of how we're approaching this is because so, so often this book is sensationalized and people miss this uh, sort of bibliosity of it, you know what I mean? This, this Bible nature of it, that it's still just a really awesome book from the Bible. And so I've encouraged everyone to read it literally just imagine it the way it is. That's why the last time around we talked about Jesus having stars in his hand, but I wanted to really focus on the fact that John was seeing someone who had just appeared in an opening between the place where God dwells and the place where we dwell. And, and for all we know, a lot of the effect he was experiencing was actually uh, just this incredible backlighting that Jesus had from the realm of God. And so now that we've done a little bit of the literal interpretation, that's been done. So it's okay if we go back and we look at like that two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, right? It also is a known idiom in the Bible for the word of God. Mm -hmm. And so surely John was also saying, yeah, that's Jesus. Nobody else comes with the word of God, both edges, 
like Jesus. So, so that's all there. And uh, so what were some of the key learnings from last week that you want to remind people of for this week? I had down that uh, to keep in mind the sevens that we talked about last week and how seven is kind of an important number in the Bible because sevens is going to continue to come up. Uh, And also keep in mind that first appearance of Jesus, because as you read chapter two, you will hear the same descriptors for Jesus that are used when John is first describing him. Jesus uses them to describe himself. And then keep in mind the historical placement that we talked about for those four first four cities that are going to come up in the next chapter. Okay. That's great. That's really great. That's my teacher daughter doing that teacher thing. I love it. And, uh, we we also want to look um, from last week at how the 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 initial conversation in the book of Revelation is between Jesus and the churches. Yes. And it's very interesting to remember that these churches are described in that passage in a way that suggests that it is both for the present, the church's present, that is those seven churches actually exist and did exist in that day but it also is referring us to the uh churches like of all time and therefore it's talking about us too and then it refers to the seven spirits of the churches which is debated a lot of different ways and so if the listeners tempted to debate us it's okay because there is no one correct answer to the question of what are the seven spirits of the seven churches but it definitely would be fair to say that it represents the sort of characters or the personalities of the seven churches, and therefore even the personalities of Christians. And so this is a report card that Jesus is about to give out to the churches that could just as easily score modern churches like Shiloh, but it could also be a score for our personal spirit of Christ in the way that we live it out. So honestly, as we begin the next chapter, chapter two, and we read this letter to the church at Ephesus, for example, we're going to hear what could be our church, our home church, or it could be us or people Mm -hmm. we know. And the truth is, it's all of them. It's the Ephesus church that existed at the time John wrote. Ephesus was a church that existed long before John was alive, and it also, it could be a church like Ephesus that exists now, and it could be a Christian like an Ephesian Christian now. So it's pretty cool, and only Jesus could pull it off, right? My Bible had a note that said um, it's a fourfold reference, that all the letters are a fourfold reference, and it says local admonitory, personal, and prophetic. So basically like local, as in like the actual church is being addressed, admonitory, because it's saying like all churches, you need to be aware of these things. And like you said, personal. And then the prophetic piece I thought was pretty interesting too. Yeah. Yeah, because it is talking about the church in the future too. I'm glad you mentioned that because I forgot to say that. And that's pretty vital, especially since Revelation is full of of stories of things to come. And yeah. there's another point I want to emphasize now that you've helped me remember it. 
And that is that it's vitally important that we always understand prophecy as not so much predictions of the future that we should sit around and worry about. That's really not what prophecy in Scripture is meant to do. What it is for is to help us to understand the signs of the times we're living in. In other words, God's telling us what to look for before we get to it so that we'll know we are where we are supposed to be. Or if I was giving you directions on how to get to my house and you'd never been here before, I would say, well, when you get to a certain road, you turn left, you'll see a big black dog in a pen barking loudly because the dog never shuts up. And we'll all chuckle, but the truth is, is when you pass that big black barking dog, there will be absolutely no doubt in your mind that you're in the right place. And so these prophecies are not meant, like I said, for us to ruminate and fear and worry about more than they are to let us know where we are in God's scheme of things, you know. And so it's exciting stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. we're, writing, uh, we're, le we're leading off with the second chapter. And this one begins with Christ's letter to the Ephesians. It's basically... Jesus telling John what to tell them for him. So this is Jesus talking. And well, yeah, one thing that I wrote down, because I my Bible is a red ink Bible, I wrote down, chapter two is entirely in red. Good point. That's a great <laughs> it point. It is all Jesus. And that there's, they talk about idioms. There's one you got from your old man, huh? Because <laughs> I've been saying all your life that there's nothing better than the red ink in your Bible. And then we all Read laugh. <laughs> you know, we all laugh when mom says, you know, not everybody's Bible has the words of Jesus in red. <laughs> Leave it to mom to bring us back down to earth. That's what she's good at. That's what she's here for. <laughs> yep. And so she grounds us. But uh, yeah, so um, I've had you read the last couple of weeks, so I'll tackle the, I'm going to read the first letter and then we'll right. go back and tear into it. So this is Revelation chapter two, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim the to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who is victorious I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in paradise of God, in the paradise of God. Wow, that's great stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, the first thing I notice, and yes, I actually got this from a commentary. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lie and tell you up front that, uh, not going to lie, <laughs> I'm going to tell you up front that I didn't think of this. But you, looking for the sevens, mm -hmm. Jesus' report card starts with seven praises. He tells them, I know your deeds and your hard work and your perseverance. I know that. So that's one, your hard work and your perseverance. I know you can't tolerate wicked people. That's two. 
that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, that's three, and have found them false, that's four, or no, that's three. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary, that's four. And then down below, he says, you hate the practices of Nicolaitans, that's five. And... Um, Now I goofed up. Help me, Beth. Where'd I mess up here? I don't know. These are the words of him. I know your deeds. You are hard work and perseverance. That's one. I know you cannot tolerate wicked people. That's two. That you have tested those who claim the apostle to be apostles but are not. That's three. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name. That's four. You... I will come to okay, you. I'm counting your deeds one, hard work one, perseverance one. So that's three. Ugh. Can't tolerate wicked. You don't tolerate wicked men. That's four. Tested those who claim to be apostles. That's five. Persevered and have not grown weary. That's six. And then hate the practices of the Nicolaitans would be seven. <laughs> You're good. See, I missed Thank it you. because I generalized too much. I, I, because because I, I like to write, as you know, and I would have not considered one sentence with three commas, you know, necessarily three things. Yeah, but it's three different things. You're right. You're right. It's just a literary form that I use. <laughs> oh, I use it so much that I didn't recognize my own method there. Well, OK. Sorry, listeners, for my stupidity. That's why Bethany helps me now. Because when I was doing it by myself, you just had to sit there and say, what a moron. Anyway, <laughs> I know you love me and you wouldn't say that to my face. Um, anyway. <laughs> All right, Beth. So I already know from last week and the week before, really, you've done your homework on the backgrounds of these churches. So, yeah. so why don't you tell us what you've learned about Ephesus? Okay, so. The actual I Ephesus. Okay, just, so I, I said this last week, but I can go into a little more detail. So Ephesus was a port city on the Aegean Sea, which is the sea that separates Asia Minor and what was Macedonia, but like Greece. Um, it's it's modern day Greece and Turkey. Did you know? Um, did you know? Is it in your notes that? Ephesus is miles away from the water now. And that it's because the Romans so exploited the land that they created an erosion problem that eventually filled in the bay. Well, that's just typical Romans. You know what I mean? Isn't that kind of wild? You know, that the, the actual port itself doesn't exist anymore at Ephesus because in the days of the Romans, they cut down all the trees and everything in the land around the port to build the city. And then when it rained, it washed all the soil down into the bay until it became impassable for boats. And so now if you go to visit Ephesus, you'll go, what port? Isn't that fascinating? It is, but it just makes me grumpy about Romans. I'm already grumpy about Romans, but it well, just makes me and, and of course, as you and I have often discussed, there's an awful lot that America has in common with Rome. Which is why I'm just grumpy about Romans all <laughs> So I, I apologize. Please continue. Well, no, no that's okay. Um, it was the, the hub 
um, of most trading, most commercial stuff, because again, Port City, it was also um, the hub, the center for um, the worship of Diana, which is the Roman version of Artemis. And I don't, I mean, um, for those that are not well versed in mythology, um, Artemis was like the huntress goddess. Um, she ran around with a pack of girls and they didn't really want anything to do with anybody else. And, um, mm -hmm. they went hunting all the time. And so that, that was a very popular, that was where people went to pay tribute to her. Did you know that Ephesus had such a large temple to Diana that it was actually bigger than the Acropolis in Athens? That's pretty cool. Ephesus actually had more features and it is still revered as one of the greatest archaeological sites of all time mm -hmm. because it had more of those kinds of features than a lot of the places that most common most are most commonly referenced. But yeah, you know how awesome the Acropolis is when you look at pictures. In Ephesus, they've got one that makes that look ordinary. Gotta say, I kind of dig the fact that both of them are for awesome ladies. Because <laughs> yeah. if I was going to pick Wonder Greek Woman. Ro Sorry. Oh, just saying, if I was going to pick Greek or Roman people to kind of like, I would probably pick Athena and Artemis. They're cool. In fact, the Temple of Diana was one of the seven wonders of the world, of the ancient world. Pretty awesome. So carry on. Um, well, so the only other thing that I kind of had highlighted for Ephesus is that, um, it's interesting. Well, so the church there was, the Christian church there was established by Paul, but, um, John, the man himself was based, it was, he was headquartered out of Ephesus. Yep. So in fact, after Diocletian died and uh, Diocletian was the one responsible for putting John on Patmos, mm -hmm. John was released from Patmos and he finished his life in Ephesus and his tomb is there to this day. Pretty cool. And uh, the Diocletian's an interesting guy, too, but we shouldn't go into that. Yeah, well, you know, but one thing we can talk about historically that is relevant to this study of Revelation is a lot of of uh how do i say this there's a there's a lot of generalization among church attending christians about that period of the church's history and the temptation is to think that the church was under constant persecution from rome mm -hmm. but in reality over the hundreds of years of spanning this period in the early beginnings of the church the the persecutions came and went. They kind of waved and it came in waves. And um, the the interesting thing is, is for a long time, the Jews and the Christians were just lumped together by the Romans and they got pretty much equal persecution from the Romans. I mean, remembering mm -hmm. that in 70 AD, the Romans sacked Israel's capital, Jerusalem, and basically the siege of Israel is one of the most awful periods in human history because the you know there were 600,000 crosses outside the walls of Israel uh over the period of the siege anybody who tried to escape the city they just nailed them to a cross um mm -hmm. it's it's a terrible time there's stories in the uh non-biblical historical records of of you know 
two women striking an agreement to eat one of their children, you know, and they draw lots or whatever, you know, that's how desperate the situation was. And there were roving gangs that were stealing. It was a terrible apocalyptic situation inside Jerusalem. This all happened to the Jews, basically. And as Mm -hmm. far as the Romans were concerned, Christians were just another kind of Jew, you know. Um, Christian persecution usually always came in waves and it came in localized areas. And it was basically brought on whenever a Christian would refuse to put a little sprinkle of something on the altar to the emperor and call him God. Mm-hmm. And that usually kicked off a wave of persecution because to do that was certain death. And too many people were just saying to the Christians, you know, it's not that big a deal. Just pinch, put the pinch on it. But they were so devoted. And and the interesting thing is those early Christians had a had a I'm not saying a peculiar view of martyrdom, but they sort of looked forward to it in a weird way because it was a mark of of personal holiness beyond any there was to them there was no better way to die than as a martyr for Christ you know um, there's some fascinating stories about some young women who wanted to be martyred for Christ and they were willing to do so even while one was pregnant and the Romans were just appalled by this so they wouldn't let her go to the uh, arena to be killed by the wild animals until she had her baby you know because huh. because the Romans were civilized people <laughs> they were going to let animals devour her but not before she had her baby um, so so this is all very interesting backstory that kind of tells you that that uh, you know if you were one of those people that took the approach that Revelation was written by John to a persecuted church well yes and no you know what I mean? That's why Revelation is such a huge book. It's so broad because it talks about persecution in the past, in the present, in the future. And in the same way that it was occurring in those days, it would occur in the future, which is in waves. You know, that some Christians could live in relative peace in the last days, say, like American Christians, while Christians living in the Middle East are experiencing the same kinds of horrors with people like ISIS you know, so it's not that different now as it, than it was then. It just depends on where you are and how far you're willing to go for your faith in Christ. So, well, it's and kind of linking back to what you said about like, you know, without talking about Diocletian, like going back to to different emperors. Um, when I was in college and I was you know, taking a bunch of history classes because I was obsessed with history. Um, <laughs> Wonder where you got that. I don't know. Um, but when I was taking um, medieval history, uh, one of my, my professor, Doc, he, um, super original, I know. <laughs> Doc pointed out to us, he said, like, he said, guys, don't forget that, you know, we may be so many years ahead of things we're reading about, but things haven't changed. So what he said was like, when you think about the emperors, when you think about these different rulers in medieval Europe and Asia and all these things, they're just like our presidents. They have platforms. Yeah. Yeah. They have things that they're about. So some of the emperors were going to be, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to get rid of all the Jews and the Christians. Just like we <laughs> he's going to build a wall. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Um, so, and I, th- I always go back to that. Like, yeah. Oh, that's, it's that's way more complex than just saying, well, the Romans hated Christian because that, that's not, you know, 
it depended on what it did for the emperor. So, so my background on Ephesus is about the time that this story uh, it was written. In fact, it's it's tradition holds that John, when he came back to Ephesus after being a Patmos, is actually when he wrote all this stuff. I uh, wrote the Gospel of John, wrote wrote the Revelation and and his various letters and things. Um, Timothy, Paul's number one disciple that he mm-hmm. considered a son in the faith is thought to have been Ephesus' first bishop. Um, mm. This is where Achilla and Priscilla and Apollos were uh, living. Um, Eusebius, who is the bishop who is credited with being the first official church historian, basically. Mm-hmm. So he's he's a first century guy, um, second century guy, I guess you should say. But but anyway, he he is the one who basically gives us what would have been for him firsthand accounts, kind of like if if uh, I can tell you a little bit about World War One based on the fact that my grandfather was there and he told me about World War One. Um, you didn't know my grandfather, and I'd never seen World War One, but you know through him, through me, more than someone who read about it in a book. So this is how we kind of give Eusebius credit for being pretty accurate because he's the first guy that kind of had the sense to write these things down while there were still people to ask who remembered these things. It goes uh, back to what we were talking about in like the first podcast we did about Revelation, about oral history and how mm-hmm. important that was in the times. Exactly, exactly. Um, Timothy, uh, John, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, are all buried in Ephesus. And... Uh, so that's, and then I guess the most uh, current that is contemporary with the writing of Revelation fact is, is that Ephesus is a name that has a meaning. What's the meaning of the name Ephesus? Desired or beloved one. Yeah. And I'll tell you something. Alistair Begg is a terrific preacher that I listen to from time to time. He has a wonderful series of sermons you can listen to through his website and podcast that is all about Paul and the Ephesians, and it just gives you such a beautiful understanding of, of the church in Ephesus and the one that Jesus said they were awesome when they first got started. And uh, so it's a great background for what we're reading now as we see Jesus' report card because he says, you guys were on it. You, you guys were, were persevering through tough times. You didn't talk or tolerate wickedness. You, you didn't... Uh, uh, you didn't let people get away with making false claims. And, and uh, you know, this is a good time to point out that these heresies that we know as things like Gnosticism and Docetism and stuff like that, all this stuff was hatching in people's minds um, because there was something undeniable about what the Christians were saying. And yet there were, as there always are, people who are looking for human ways to interpret mysterious God things, you know. And people um, adjust things to fit what they're already doing so exactly. they don't have to do extra work. So, so Jesus commends them for that. I don't know there's a whole lot more to say about that, except I would recommend to the listeners that you read the letter to the Ephesians and then find a really good teaching on Ephesians. I'm recommending Alistair Begg. Uh, there are plenty of good ones out there, but that's a series I really enjoy. And you'll just fall in love with his wonderful Scottish brogue. <laughs> um, you know, it is really here yeah he's fun i've met him he's a small man and he is a huge 
personality. I mean, he, he speaks with such power. Uh, wonderful man. Um, but then Jesus says, but I hold this against you. And, you know, you're in the you're in the school business. Doesn't it read like a report card? Do them really well on this, do them really well on that. But here's something you need to work on. You've forsaken the love that you first had. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do things like you did in the beginning. And if you don't repent, I might have to take away your lampstand. Remember the lampstands in the first chapter? Um I kind of messed that up a little bit in the, when we were talking about it because I was putting the light on the lampstand and I shouldn't have done that. Jesus is clearly in chapter two saying, I've got the lights in my hand. Mm-hmm. You guys are the lampstands. And, and, and he literally means like candlestick, you know, right. you guys are the lampstands. So the local church, um, the church universal, whatever, it's, it's a lampstand and it's meant to carry the light and to broadcast the light. And it's almost like Jesus has taken the light off the lampstand and given him a good once over and trying to decide whether he's going to put the light back on or not, so to speak. It's like, you know, and, and that's a scary thought, you know, that Jesus might say even today, you know, I, I really like Shiloh. There's so many things they do well, but but they've fallen away from those things and their light has grown dim. And I've got a new fire right here in my hand that I can put on it. And I can put a new fire on there, but I can't do it until they're ready to repent of their falling away and return to my that first love we had together, in which case I bring the light over and bam, you're glowing bright again. You know, yeah. what, what a neat idea. And I just think it's really interesting that their name means beloved one. And the thing that they're getting reprimanded for is that they've forsaken their first love. You know, I heard a guy say... an interesting juxtaposition there. Yeah, I heard a guy say that, you know, a grandpa was talking to his grandchild, and the grandchild says, do you think God is always looking at me? And grandpa said, he loves you so much he can't take his eye off of you. Mm-hmm. Isn't that a neat idea? Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's not like he's judging you. It's just the way we adore the things and the people we love. We're always looking at them. You know, I still look at your mother that way, you know. It's just, I was looking at her that way this afternoon. She came in and she was standing there in the door and the afternoon sun was kind of lighting her up. And I thought, oh, she's as beautiful as ever. But, you know, that's what you do when you love somebody. You're always watching them because you love them. Mm -hmm. It gives you pleasure to watch them. And uh, so Jesus is kind of saying, not only is your light going out, but if it goes out and stays out, then I'm going to put the lampstand somewhere else. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. And then this last thing, and this is one we're going to have to work on together here. Who the heck are the Nicolaitans in verse 6 of chapter 2? Nicolaitans. Lucky for you, I did research. Let's hear it, my love. (laughs) Well, okay, but now it sounds like I did, like, I didn't, like, write a thesis. Well, it's okay. I've got notes, too. Okay. We'll do this together. (laughs) So... Um, for starters, the Nicolaitans were, they were like a group of people who professed to be Christians. Like that's, I think that's an important thing to point out is like, they said they were Christians, Mm -hmm. but they were Christians who were preaching like, like that 
because you were a Christian, you had license to sin. Right. Like that it was okay to be doing all this bad stuff because you were a Christian, which I think is just really amusing. Um, Well, so do a word study. Uh, Nikao, Nika, Uh the root, means conquer or overcome or rule. And Laos means laity or the people. Mm-hmm. So Nicolaitans is a nickname. Who says Jesus doesn't use colloquialisms? You know, he, in in the same way that uh, Methodists or Yankees, that was a nickname that the people who were opposed to them gave them, and of course, turned out they were on the good side at least as far as our history is concerned. Therefore, it becomes something we're proud of. But what if it turns out to be something that you wish you could, you know, leave behind? like a Nicolation, you know, we don't hear any more Nicolations, uh, but they're still out there, aren't they? They used religious authority, assumed, presumed, or even given in order to unjustly rule over the laity in such a way where they don't hold themselves accountable by the same standards. So uh, my notes say, that Jesus would probably say a Nicolation is the opposite of the kind of person he told us to be in John 13 when he washed their feet. Mm-hmm. So, so Jesus is using a nasty word in a way. I mean, you know, just not a dirty word, but just a, a, a you know, a unpleasant moniker for these people. He's saying, you know, these these self-appointed church rulers, or maybe what he meant when he said up there in his commendations that you test people who claim to be apostles but are not and then find them false, you know, Nicolaitans. Mm-hmm. So what else you got? That, uh, that's all I have for Nicolaitans. Okay. Sorry. No, that's okay. And and so basically in my notes, I've, I've found that, you know, basically Ephesus had a reputation for upholding doctrinal purity, you mm-hmm. know, and that faded away as they sort of gave in to the temptation of their community, you know, so basically when we described Ephesus as it was in the day, it was a big modern city with a lot of big modern ideas. And it was pretty hard to be a Christian, I'm sure. And there were probably a lot of temptations to, to uh, sort of do church that way. And I think we still struggle with that to this day. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, I hope I say this right, not, because you'll get me, but I don't know if everybody will. So it's kind of like in the early 2000s, every church in the neighborhood wanted to try to be like the big mega churches. You have a really cool band with spiky-haired kids and really hip pastors with untucked shirts and goatees and, you know, thick-rimmed glasses. And, and, you know, they all wanted to try to be like the cool churches. And most of the cool churches were successful most because they were doctrinally sound, but the imitators were just looking for a way to be relevant because they didn't feel relevant. And the imitators, a lot of times, were doing sort of a white bread version of church. It was, you know, soft and gushy and tasted good with peanut butter and jelly, but it didn't have any nutritional value at all. And what you used to call it like pop, pop Christianity, pop right? Christianity. Yeah. That's, that's what I always wanted to call it because, and everybody was trying to be the next hip pop church. And of course, if you got one of those in your town, it's always tempting to say, Oh, that's all they're about. Well, 
there's a market for that, but it doesn't matter unless they are doctrinally sound, right. you know, and, and I mean biblically doctrinally sound. I mean, there's also religious sects and uh, denominations, and they have doctrinal standards as well. But, but for our discussion, we just want to talk about biblical doctrine. And, you know, a, a church can, can be hip and cool and awesome and all that, you know, if it's doctrinally sound. But what happens so often is, is that people try to make a church into something that meets community standards of success for the benefit of impressing the community at large and doesn't actually say anything of any particular value to anyone. So we impress the heck out of people in our neighborhood and our community who don't care that much about doctrine either. But Jesus is paying attention and Jesus has a report card for Shiloh. Jesus has a report card for Pastor Dan. Jesus has a report card for Sister Bethany. You know, everybody is getting scored by Jesus and it's because he wants the kind of relationship that was there when you first fell in love with him, when he was the point, you know. I mean, this is a huge contemporary issue that we're reading about as it was written to a church almost 2,000 years ago. And uh, this is surely why the red ink is so good in any Bible. So yep. I'm preaching a little bit. That's so cool, you know. I mean, he's, you know. Um, here's another example that uh, Chuck Missler gives of the difference between real Christians and Nicolaitans. He compares David to Solomon. He says David uh, is all over the scriptures, and he is, in everything he says, admiring God, a man after God's own heart. You can't read anything about David that doesn't ultimately point to his love and devotion to God. So even when David's screwing up and all that's left out in the open for us to see in Scripture, it always ends with him honoring God. Solomon is only mentioned for a short time, and everything they say about him in the Bible is mean, nasty. Mm -hmm. He's proud. He's vain. He's crazy at times. Um, he was an apostate. He he practiced the faith, and then when that didn't work, he practiced divination and stuff like that. He even conjured up the dead, you know. Um, and uh, you know you're bad when you conjure up a dead guy who gives you a hard way to go for conjuring him up because you should have known better. Mm-hmm. And, and Solomon did that. Um, David simply wanted to dwell in the house of the Lord forever, Psalm 23, mm-hmm. 6. There's the difference between the true believer in Ephesus, the one who is thoroughly devoted to Christ and the one who is a Nicolaitan. Mm-hmm. So I think we covered Nicolaitans pretty thoroughly. I think so. So verse 7 says, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Why do you think he says that? I guess start with the literal. That's always the best move. I mean... I, I guess, like. So I, I'll, I'll help you out. I heard I heard a preacher say, "Will everyone in the room who has at least one functional ear raise your hand?" I mean, when I hear that, <laughs> I think like what we do. I mean, that's funny, but like, I guess when I hear that, I think of like when I'm trying to get the attention of seventeen squirmy children. Right. Hey, listen. Yeah. 
Yeah, I see teachers do it. You know, I've I've been in churches with preschools for for many years now, and I see these preschool teachers do it. You know, they put their finger over their mouths and they kind of do gestures with their hands to say, "Close your mouths, open your eyes, open your ears." Right? You know. Give me five. You know, so Jesus is saying, "Open your eyes, open your ears, listen, yeah. shut up, and listen." Because this is important. And, and I, again, this commentator that I've been referring to, um, he says, what we should understand is that God takes sin very seriously. Mm-hmm. You know, that he's not fooling around when it comes to sin. And the people who have been studying Joshua with me on Wednesday nights would understand that because we saw what happened to Israel because of one man's sin. And what happened to him when he finally confessed his sin, you know. So it's serious. And he says to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Could we just think of what that means literally? Yeah. It's the same one that Adam and Eve were eating from, so to speak. And when, yeah. they, you know, and when they got kicked out, right? He's saying that. The reboot's coming, and if you are victorious, you're going to be part of that. Isn't that commentator the one that says that Revelation is like the opposite of Genesis? What does he say? Yeah, Missler. He says, and, and you know, I've mentioned him a lot, so I'm going to tell people. I, I, I really find him fascinating because he's Me a great— too. He's a science guy. Um, I love him. But with all, you know, fairly well-known— Christian figures, there's always people that can judge up crud about him. So if you guys decide to Google him, you're going to hear things about him that might bother you. But what I what I judge him by is his words. I don't even judge him by his organization because he's gotten old now and his wife just passed away recently and he's kind of frail now. And, and so he's got people taking over his organization that I'm not sure I like like I like him. But he has voice his voice is all over the internet you can watch him on youtube you can hear him in on all sorts of settings and what i listen to with him is the way he parses the word the way he takes the scripture and 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 lets the bible interpret the bible that is so huge so mm-hmm. you know anyway he yeah he's the one that says and i think he's really talking about the latter part of revelation but there's a point where the creative process described in Genesis is pulled, completely put into reverse in, in Revelation. By the end of Revelation, all the six days of creation have pretty much gone backward until it is the utter chaos that it once was. You know. But I'm thinking even right here, there's a little bit of the opposite because that's the, it is the same tree. And now God's saying that you're going to have the right to eat from it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool. So I was, I was, when I was reading the letters, I was looking at them from like a, a literary analysis kind of standpoint mm-hmm. too. And what I think is interesting is like, there, like you said, report card, like there, there's a formula for these letters and they don't all follow the formula, but like, well, because, like, when we get to Smyrna next, like, that one doesn't follow quite. But for the most part, like, he identifies, like, he identifies himself. And I think the way he identifies himself is important for that church. You know, like, in this one, he identifies himself as holding the stars and walking among the lampstands. And then he makes a point of saying he's going to take away their lampstand. 
So he, like, Jesus identifies himself in every single letter. Right. Then he points out what they're doing that's good. Then he tells them what they're doing that needs work. And then he offers a possible solution and the reward for that solution. That's perfect. Yeah, that is perfect. And I think that that's really interesting. And so then I think it's really interesting when you get to the letters that don't quite follow the formula because they're kind of special. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's brilliant. That's, that's great stuff. Wow. Well, okay. And I think looking at our time, I think this is probably going to be our pattern for several weeks because we're, we're covering one letter and, (laughs) and doing a really thorough job. And I'm not ashamed of that. I think that's a good idea. Um, There's so much to learn. I think we've learned a lot about ourselves and our church too. And uh, the, the basic, um, I guess the basic conclusion we have here is that judging your uh, Jesus is judging your Christian living based on the amount of love you have for him and devotion to him. And that's what he's interested in. He's, he's, uh, you know, not vain or anything. He just knows that the secret to life uh, in the spirit is devotion to him um, the other way I'd put it is something I just told somebody the other night. If you want to know what the secret sauce of Christianity is, it's humility. Um, in my opinion, the most important thing that any Christian could do on their journey of sanctification, in other words, their journey towards personal holiness, is to become more and more humble. Because humility means Jesus first and me second. And Everybody can look at their lives and see those places where they put themselves first. And, and it's, it's really, you know, easy to tell because Jesus gives you these loving report cards. I love it when you're totally with me. I hate it when you start doing that thing that takes you away from me. And the whole idea is, is that he wants you to have the, the life abundant. And the secret to abundant life is humility. It's kind mm-hmm. of amazing. Because it's sort of an oxymoron, but then everything in the Bible is like that. If there's an odd, weird, not human way to approach anything, that's the way you can probably see God doing whatever it is that God's going to do. It's kind of amazing. You have any closing thoughts for people? Any assignments you want them to do for next week? Uh, Read the letter to Smyrna. Yeah. Because it looks like that's what we're probably going to cover next week. Yeah, well, I, I would say that, God willing, that's what we're going to do. Yeah. Um, I thought it would be interesting for my part to close with the Apostle Paul's parting words to Ephesus. Oh, I like that. He says in Acts 20, verses 25 to 31, Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Wow. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. They should have listened to Paul. And maybe they did for a while. Time has a way of taking its toll. Well, this has been great, Bethany. Tell everybody yep. bye. Bye, guys. See you next week. Yep. Love you. Love you. So Jesus' first letter to one of the churches is to Ephesus. He's written a letter, a report card of sorts, to the church at Ephesus, and uh, it's a report card to us as well. It's a way of saying to the churches that are thriving or existing this day the same sort of truth that is expressed to the church in Ephesus. It's also a message to us to as individuals. So, you know, in, in, in a sort of weird way, I'm going to suggest that when you hear him talk to the seven churches or the seven spirits, he's talking about seven kinds of Christians, sort of. And so take that to heart, because what you heard him say about Ephesus may very well apply to you and uh, your church. So this is the fascinating and remarkable thing about the book of Revelation. It is of all the books in the Bible, the one that is the most uh, contemporary at the same time as it is completely historical. Um, all the Bible is alive, a living word that we are to hear in our present tense now, but this one is, is special. Uh, there's something about that book. Uh, it's really, it's why I keep coming back to it and and I find it far more fulfilling to read it without trying to read too much into it. And this is what I urge you to do. So my thanks again to Bethany for her wonderful participation. She's getting better at this every week. I'm thinking that one of these days she's going to run the show and I'll just sit here and listen. And uh, maybe uh-huh once in a while. We, we were just joking about how maybe we'll have guest participants sometime. So... Uh, you know, if that sounds like something you'd like to do, let me know and we'll we'll uh, see what we can arrange. Anyway, thank you for listening again this week. We have uh, a couple of takeaways for you. So uh, you want to you want to listen to the story of Ephesus in both a contemporary and uh, historical sense. And you want to also think about what you heard as a prediction of the future, things that Jesus expects churches to be like in the, in the times to come, and that'll make more sense as we read further. And then uh, Bethany wants you to just continue to uh, to do the kind of research and understanding of the places that Jesus addresses that she's done. So do a little homework on uh, uh, Smyrna and uh, figure out what uh, might be happening there in the time that John is writing so that you can kind of apply it to your own context and to your church's context. That's all for this week's study. We hope you've been blessed. Please send your comments and questions by way of email. You can reach me through the uh, Shiloh United Methodist Church webpage. That's shilohum.org. 
shilohum.org, S-H-I-L-O-H-U-M.org. The best way to participate with us is through the Facebook group called Knowing God with Heart and Mind. It's a private group, so you'll have to uh, request to join the group, but I'll respond very quickly. We're glad to have you as part of that discussion. We post all kinds of things on that Facebook group, uh, pictures, videos, um, comments, and conversation, and it's really a great follow-up and, and uh, uh really takes the whole virtual church Sunday school classroom to a whole new level, you know. So the church classroom has a place where we can share questions and comments and, and additional learning. So be sure and visit that. There's a link on the uh, description box uh, for this podcast. So just, just come to the group and join us there, and we'll be glad to have that conversation with you. And... Uh, if you are ever in Jasper, Indiana, we'd love to see you. Come to Jasper and visit Shiloh United Methodist Church, where I'll be glad to get to know you personally. But for now, God bless you, and goodbye. Mm-hmm.